Hey, can we thank the band for leading us in worship? I feel like, I feel like we should just keep them up here and just sing for the rest of the service, then go home, right? Right? Um, man, that was wonderful. Hey, everybody, welcome and happy Fourth uh, of July weekend. Um, some of you are probably watching from home, maybe from the beach, organizing their fireworks, right? They're like down there counting their fireworks. But I have a surprise for you guys. I brought fireworks with me today. I'm totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. KidZone is actually using those. So they're going to have a really good time. And you guys seem way comfortable with that, which is kind of nerve-wracking for me. Uh, but welcome to the CLC. My name's Christian, and I'm on staff here. And we are in this series. We're in week 11 of this series called Love Revolution, which is all about revolutionizing how it is that we love God and love our neighbor. And I think it's in this revolution that we can establish God's kingdom on earth, that this is the revolution that God is calling all followers to, to bring heaven to earth, right? Um, and I've really loved how Bob's kind of set up this series in previous weeks. He said some things that I think are worth repeating. First of them being that love, I think, is the best apologetic for our faith. If we want to prove the existence of God, we can through how we love our neighbor, right? Another thing that he said is, you know an understudy of Jesus by how they love, right? Not their biblical knowledge, not their church attendance, not even by how nice they are, but you know and understudy someone who follows Jesus by their love, right? And love this one thing, Jesus gives every other person in the world the right to judge us on how well we love, right? Jesus gives every non-Christian, we give Chester County permission to look at the CLC, engage how well we are following Jesus based on how it is that we love our community, right? And so we're continuing through this series today, and we're talking about how love, loving of God and neighbor are so central to the kingdom of heaven. This is central to the culture, and we've been talking about this a lot, especially in the last couple of years, that when Jesus came to earth, he came to earth to bring about heaven to earth. This kingdom of heaven, he made these announcements that he has brought heaven to earth, right? And the coolest part is that he invites us along, right? Us messy, us broken, us selfish people. He extends an invitation to say, hey, I want you to join me in a this kingdom on earth, right? And how are we supposed to do that? Through loving God and loving our neighbor. And so we're going to be working through that today. Uh, specifically, I want to talk about uh, what it looks like to participate in the kingdom of heaven on earth. And so I'm going to talk about three things. What does it look like to encounter heaven, right? And when we encounter heaven, what does an appropriate response to encountering heaven look like for, for anyone, right? What should an appropriate response be? And then I think anytime we talk about kingdoms, we have to bring up the difficult conversation of talking about our counterfeit kingdoms. What do we settle for? What are the things that maybe get in the way of our experiencing the kingdom of God and the way that God has invited us to? And so we're going to work through that. And the bottom line is today that for, a kid, for citizens of the kingdom, we are compelled by joy to go all out and love God and neighbor, right? To sacrifice everything in order to see this kingdom come to fruition. So you all ready for that? Is that okay? We doing all right today? I'm sorry that KidZone's got our fireworks today, but maybe we can do something another time. But before we jump in, let me go ahead and pray for us.
Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this chance to be here as a congregation, as a community, and just sing about how good you are. That, uh, that yes, we can celebrate freedoms in this country, but even more so, we can celebrate the freedom that you have given us, that no one, nothing can take away. And so God, we're grateful for that. God, we ask that you fill this place Open our hearts to receive what you have for us in your word. Bring us clarity. Uh, bring us uh, this joy to compel us to participate in what it is that you have for us. May we not miss out on this. God, we love you so much. Thanks for loving us. We pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen. 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 All right. So I have to confess and be honest. Uh, my favorite weekend in July used to be like July 4th weekend, you know, enjoy the festivities, enjoy seeing family. But my favorite weekend now in July is the week after July 4th because it's actually my anniversary weekend. And so next week, Jess and I are celebrating six years of marriage, which is wonderful. Yeah, you guys are clapping for her because she's got to put up with me, right? Um, but this will be our last anniversary um, before we welcome two baby girls into the world in this fall. So we're so thrilled, so excited, so overwhelmed, um, but we're so looking forward to it, right? Um, but anyway, we started dating in high school, and I love highlighting this. I love telling the students that you can find your spouse in high school, guys, because it kind of makes them feel like a little awkward, and it makes their parents feel a little anxious, right? I'm a terrible person. Um, <laughs> And so we met, uh, we met freshman year, first class of ninth grade, uh, we met. It was three-dimensional art, and we got to become friends over the years, and then we started dating in 12th grade. But as I was getting to know her, we, uh, I would occasionally go over to her house to hang out. And I very distinctly remember the first time I went to uh, her house. I walked in the front door, and I turned to the right, and they have what they call the doll room. It, it's, it is as creepy as it sounds, right? Uh, my mother-in-law, and I hit the jackpot for in-laws. They're wonderful. But my mother-in-law used to have this hobby where she would collect a bunch of dolls. And actually, we have a picture of what the room kind of looked like. It's like an image from a, a, a scary movie or something, right? Um, she would collect dolls. Um, but every now and then, she would find a gem. She would find a doll of great Value. And so what she would do with those dolls is she wouldn't put them in that room. She had a different room for those dolls, and it was the doll room. And so I'd walk in her house, and you'd see it on the right, and it's just dolls everywhere. But the scary part is they're life-sized, and they're realistic-looking. Like, they look like real, like, children in the room just sitting still staring at you, right? Um, so in the doll room in the center, there was a little uh, table where two Kids were sitting drinking tea, right? So you try not to make eye contact as you're walking through, right? But she had this habit, or not habit, this hobby, where she would go to auction and an auction, all these auctions to find these special dolls, right? And she would bid on them, she'd look through the lots, and she had to find these particular dolls because they were of high value to her, right? And every now and then, as we, I'd go to the auctions with them. Every now and then when we went to the auctions, she would find counterfeits, right? She'd look, you'd look from afar, but then she'd look close and she said, oh, you know this is a counterfeit because it's missing this tag. Or maybe it's got this label in here. This is a fake. This is, it looks like the real deal, but it's not the real deal, right? So all the time she would go to these auctions to try and find something of great value. 
And today we're talking, we're going to work through two very short parables of these guys who find something of great value, and when they find it, they go to incredible, we might label it foolish lengths, to make these things theirs, right? As we go through this parable, as we wrestle with it, it's a parable that if we hear it, it should challenge us. It should challenge our complacency. It should challenge our comfort. It should call into question some of our commitments, some of our counterfeit items that we commit to in life. And it should hold that into question so that we might, right? The end goal is to participate in bringing heaven to earth. And so I hope as we read through these parables today that they challenge us, right? And so that's what we're going to do today because once again, Again, the bottom line is that kingdom citizens, compelled by joy, naturally go to great lengths to love God and love neighbor. Right? Amen, church? And so what I want to do is I want to set up the context of these parables real quick for us. So all throughout the New Testament, we see Jesus saying this one saying, which seems to confuse a lot of people. He says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. And who's king of that kingdom? Jesus, right? And so this is a kingdom with a new culture, new way of doing life. There's no borders. It's not restricted to one language. Anyone can get in on it, Jew or Gentile. It is open to everybody and says the kingdom of heaven is at hand and I am king and that was a very controversial thing to say right because who was king at that time Caesar right and so to say that you were king and ushering in a kingdom was a very controversial almost foolish thing to say but that is what Jesus does right and so as a result of how controversial this is we find that people respond to this kingdom differently right We have some people who hear Jesus' invitation to participate in the kingdom, and they're like, I'm all in. Like, I believe this is the Messiah. This is the real deal. This is not a counterfeit. I am all in, and I will give everything to participate, right? And then we have those people who are a bit more neutral about it, right? They're like, ah, you know, I don't know. Is this Jesus guy trustworthy? Like, what does Caesar say about this? I don't know if I want to give my allegiance to this kingdom, right? And then we have the people who want nothing to do with it, right? People who see it, maybe they misunderstand it, maybe they misjudge it, and they're like, I do not, I cannot, I won't be a part of this kingdom, right? And so we get to this passage that we're in today. We're going to be in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew 11 to 13, Jesus is teaching and he offers these parables. And there's seven parables where he is telling people, he's providing these parables to detail the different ways that people respond to the kingdom, right? He's providing seven parables to help people understand how the public, how people are responding to Jesus' invitation to participate in this kingdom. But then... He, he turns away from the crowd and he turns to his disciples with two parables. And that's where we're going to be today. These disciples are written for the church, for Jesus' followers. And so it is important that we open our ears and receive what God might have for us in this, right? And so we're going to be in those two parables. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 13. You can pull it up on your phone. Uh, there's Bibles in the pews. If you don't have a Bible, take one home with you. We want you to have that. Um, but you can follow along there. It's really short. It's funny. There's not a lot of scripture today but I'll still drag it out for like an hour. So, um, but here's Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and reburied. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. 
And so what Jesus is doing here is he's taking a familiar image and he's trying to use that familiar image to teach them something about heaven, to teach us something about the kingdom of heaven that God is bringing to earth, right? So back then, banks didn't exist, right? They didn't have any secure place to put their savings or their 401k or their IRA, right? And so what they would do is they'd find a spot on their property, maybe in a cave or in a field, and they'd just put all of their treasure right there, right? Does anyone, anyone have treasure in your backyard? Actually, don't raise your hand. Just let us know. Fill out a connect card, and you can like leave your address. We'll follow up with you. Um, right? No one does that. Uh, banks didn't exist, and so every story, every, sorry, every town probably had a story of some guy who got lucky and stumbled upon a treasure, right? And so Jesus is recalling a story, an image that they would have been familiar with to try and teach them something about heaven. And so the sum of this parable is this guy finds his treasure and in his joy, he reburies it, sells everything to buy this treasure. How many of us would look at that and say, how foolish, right? He just sold everything that he had, right? Took everything out of his savings. He sold his house, did all of these things to acquire this treasure. That is ridiculous and absurd. Like, who would do that, right? However, if we realize the value of the thing that has been found, selling everything wouldn't be a cost at all. It wouldn't be a loss at all, right? And so he was so joyfully compelled to forsake all things because, because what he found was deemed so precious, right? Of such importance that it's worth selling everything for. And should we ever realize, should we as a church ever realize the depth and the wonder and the beauty of what God is inviting us to? Should we realize what we have encountered no doubt would we get rid of everything. Any obstacle that is in the way, we would push it aside to participate in what this is because this invitation is of great value, right? We sang about it a moment ago. You're worthy of it all, right? Not worthy of some of it, not worthy of part of my life, not worthy of just Sundays and Wednesdays and whenever we come to church, right? You are worthy of everything, right? And so that's what we're seeing in this parable. And that's a really bold thing to sing, right? That's a really courageous thing for anybody to sing that you're worthy of it all. But once we realize what we found, it's no longer a bold thing to sing. We just can't sing anything else, right? And so I hope as a church that we realize what we've encountered in Jesus and that it becomes so easy to throw everything back and say, Jesus is worthy of everything. I don't need anything else, right? And so when teaching about the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is using this familiar image to teach the disciples specifically about what it looks like to respond well to the kingdom of heaven, that we should cast everything off for this kingdom. But it's interesting because who's he talking to? The disciples, did they not already abandon everything just to follow him, right? Didn't they already kind of leave everything? So why on earth would Jesus be telling them this parable? Shouldn't he be telling this to the crowds too? Why on earth is he honing in on the disciples to tell them how to appropriately respond to the kingdom of heaven? And not only does he do it once, but he does it twice because he provides a second parable that is much like the first. This is what it says in verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And on finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. 
Once again, he's telling almost the same thing to the disciples, but in this case, the merchant's already searching for something, right? Whereas the farmer, this other gentleman, could have very well stumbled upon this treasure, this merchant is actually looking for something greater. And isn't that such a reflection of the plight of the world today? Everybody's searching for something of profound meaning and value, right? So this merchant is on the hunt for a great pearl, right? And so what happens is, is he finds it. He finds not just a good thing, but a great thing and sells everything to acquire it. Now, I don't know if you know this, but I'm not a merchant. Uh, But I don't think that's great practice for a merchant, right? To sell absolutely everything, like your stock, your empty your 401k, your savings, all of these things to buy that one pearl. Because what happens if you lose that pearl, right? Or what happens if someone steals that pearl from you? That is a foolish decision to make, right? However, if you deem it of that much worth, that is not a foolish decision to make. That's the right decision to make. The kingdom of heaven is like that, right? This is the kingdom of heaven. These parables should kind of be comical in some sense. They should kind of cause us to laugh and to think like, what are they doing, right? However, what Jesus is trying to get at is if we are to consider and understand the beauty of what it is that he's inviting us to, we would so easily cast everything off. And it might look foolish to the whole world, but it would make so much sense. It would be the only right thing to do, right? And so that is what's happening. So Jesus is reminding them, this is the kingdom of heaven. Remember, Jesus is ushering it in, and he wants to invite his disciples and the church to be a part of building this thing, bringing heaven to earth, right? And should one realize, should our church, I hope and pray that this would be us, should our church realize the weight of what it is that we found, my goodness, How incredible would that be to cast everything off in order to make this ours and then to make it someone else's, right? But again, it's weird. It should catch our attention that Jesus is giving this parable to the disciples, right? Because I thought they modeled this pretty well already, right? Didn't they already cast everything off? Didn't they do that to follow you, Jesus? However, I do suspect that there are two two possible reasons why the disciples, maybe the church, need to be reminded of this. And the two reasons are we are are often compelled by the wrong things, and we are often compelled to the wrong things. We're often compelled by the wrong things, and we're often compelled to the wrong things. Now, I need to preface this portion of the sermon. I love this church. I love this community, and I want nothing more and for us to experience what it is that God is providing for us, that God's making available to us, right? And so with that, I want to, for a few minutes, enter into what could be a difficult conversation, could be a challenging conversation. Another thing that I want to mention is that young people are leaving the church in droves, and we have to ask ourselves this question, why is it happening? But I think one of the reasons why is the church seldom has really difficult conversations. And so what I want to do today is I want to enter into that space where we as a family can have some difficult conversations. And it's going to be challenging, and it might be uh, confusing, and some of this might be new, but I hope, I hope that we can be a church of so much grace and so much compassion to model this to the world. And so some of the stuff I want to navigate, again, is tricky. So um, I felt like it would be really um, unfair to, uh, 
to just have the stage and say these things without anyone feeling like they could wrestle alongside me with these things and have conversations. So I'm actually gonna put my contact information on the screen. You could save it. That is my cell phone number. I don't know if this is a bad idea or not. Um, but, uh, but I want you to know that we as your church family want to work through stuff. We want nothing more than the CLC to experience the kingdom of heaven on earth and to build that kingdom right here in Chester County beyond. Amen? And so that's what we want to do. And so, um, but I did want to mention, if you send me any Dallas Cowboys propaganda, I will probably block you immediately. So just had to mention that. <laughs> so I wanted to preface everything without two difficult hurdles that I think we should come face to face with. And the first one is this. We are compelled by the wrong things. Here in Jesus' teaching... What is the man compelled by? Joy, right? It's cool because the Greek word for joy is kara, which is the root of the word grace, charis or charis, right? And so there's a connection between our experiencing the grace of God and our having joy, right? So what happens is in this parable is this man has experienced the grace of God in a profound way, and that naturally gave birth to joy in his life, and he was compelled by joy to sell everything. No one told him to do that. No one told him to go through the difficult process of liquidating his assets to acquire this treasure, right? He went through all of that by joy because he had experienced the grace of God. However, sometimes we are often tempted to be compelled by other things, things that are not sufficient, things that are not good compellers. Some of us, I know this is my story, I was compelled by punishment. I was afraid of an angry God who would send me to hell because of my wrongdoing. So I only participated because of fear, right? Some of us are compelled by guilt. Ah, oh, look at the things that I've done. Some of us are compelled by shame. Look who I am, right? And some of us are compelled by insecurity. And some of us are even compelled by pride. Sometimes it looks good to have church on your resume, right? Sometimes it looks good to the community and the neighbors. Oh, that guy goes to church, right? Yet none of these are sufficient compellers. None of them are sustainable compellers. They cannot replace joy, right? They might work for a little while, but surely they will not work forever. We, we are compelled by the wrong thing. And sometimes some of us think that we can be compelled or that we can compel others through law, right? The, uh, <laughs> Paul writes a lot about the relationship between uh, disciples and the law, right? And the purpose of it was to show us our wrongdoing. But sometimes I think that we think that we can compel ourselves or even other people by law, but this is the problem. And I'm not saying law is bad at all. We should advocate for those without a voice, right? We should, that should be near and dear and close to our hearts. But the point that I'm trying to make is that law cannot transform anybody's heart, right? Legislation can't transform hearts. It can't enable people or transform them to love Jesus, right? I've never met anyone who's read Leviticus and said, oh my gosh, I just love Jesus now, right? <laughs> no one reads the Ten Commandments and they're like, I am just so compelled by joy. No, usually it highlights our wrongdoing, right? Not to say that the law should be done away with. Not at all, right? And this even applies with the recent you know, court ruling with Roe v. Wade. And, and Bob and I actually did a podcast about this. If you've not seen it, you can check it out. It's on clcfamily.church slash media. But you know, good things can come from law. However, it doesn't change any hearts. It doesn't transform people at all. So 
as a church, we can't count on that as a natural compeller. We can't use that. We can't put all of our eggs in that basket to compel people to Jesus. It will not work. So we have to consider alternatives, right? We have to figure out what it is that we should be doing. Law won't compel people. It doesn't even compel us very sufficiently. So what are we to do, right? Henry Nouwen, he's a theologian, he says it this way, the temptation to consider power an apt instrument for the proclamation of the gospel is the greatest temptation of all. Another commentator uh, on this passage says it this way, it is not by telling people to sacrifice that they make sacrifices, right? This guy in the story, he didn't, no one told him to sell it, he just did. It is not by telling people to sacrifice that they make sacrifices. It is not by preaching God's law that people do God's law. It is first by telling people of God's treasures that people then sell what is necessary. You guys following me? We are compelled by joy. We see this even in the most, um, the most memorized laws in the Bible, the Ten Commandments. They're even prefaced by joy because G- the writer of that, uh, writing on God's behalf, says this, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That prefaces the Ten Commandments. That is supposed to compel the Israelites to joy. Do you remember when you were in bondage and now you are free, Right? Do you remember you were in slavery, but you have been redeemed, restored, right? That should compel us to joy. And so the writing of the Ten Commandments is prefaced by that. It's because we are not to obey out of mere obligation, but we should find that we are compelled by joy because of the gift that we have received. So church, we have to ask ourselves, are we compelled by joy? The law can't transform us but the love of God can. So I hope that that compels us to joy. And this is what our whole series has been about, right? These words have been in the newsletter for 10 weeks now. It says this, Jesus didn't fight immorality with morality. He didn't fight lawlessness with law. Jesus did not conquer souls through coercion. He conquered through love. God's love like a treasure in a field, God's invitation for us to experience what he has for us, like a treasure in a field, should compel us to so much joy that we could, without second guessing, cast off everything else to experience it. That's what Jesus is trying to get to the disciples in this moment. He's trying to get them to understand that because they've not been getting it. And I hope, church, that we can realize that as well, right? The man was compelled by great joy. And if we're not compelled by great joy, I would venture to ask, have we really found the treasure, right? Have we find this prize of great worth? Because if so, we should be compelled by joy, right? And so Jesus repeats these parables to the church, to the disciples, because sometimes we are compelled by the wrong things. And the second thing is sometimes we are compelled to the wrong things. And this is... Um, difficult topic to work through, but it's 4th of July weekend, right? We're celebrating uh, the freedoms that our country has granted us, but what I want us to do is wrestle with what does it look like to love country well in light of kingdom, right? What does it look like for uh, us to be good Christians, good followers of Jesus before any other identity? What does it look like to do that, right? And so we're going to talk about for a few minutes, what does it look like to order our loves in a way that makes sense for the treasure that we found, okay? Okay. 
And so Jesus speaks regularly about the kingdom of heaven. We see it so often, and especially to his disciples, he speaks regularly about it because I think we are a fickle people that are so preoccupied with counterfeit kingdoms, right? We are so easily drawn to one thing or another, and sometimes we miss the treasure that Jesus is trying to give us, right? And we see this constantly in Jesus' ministry. Like, you know when you read the Bible uh, and you look at the disciples mess up, and you're like, that's so embarrassing, right? Like, they did a terrible job. But then you look at your own life and like, oh, I think that's me, right? But we see instances of this through all throughout Jesus' ministry where the disciples did not understand what it is that Jesus was doing. Jesus said, I'm here to establish the kingdom of heaven. And the first thing that the disciples thought is, you're going to overthrow Rome and we're going to reestablish Israel into its proper place, right? And so we see examples of that in John 6. Jesus just fed the 5,000. And they're compelled by joy, but they're compelled to the wrong thing. And in the passage, it says that they wanted to install him as king by force, right in John 6. And so the way Jesus responded is he actually withdrew to the mountain because he did not want to be a part of that, right? In Mark 14, we see Jesus being arrested and they presumed that Jesus was leading a rebellion because they came with clubs and weapons and everything, right? And they thought that Jesus, the disciples and the religious leaders and the political leaders thought that Jesus was there to overthrow Rome and establish Israel as the kingdom, right? However, Jesus was arrested, and the disciples, upon realizing that Jesus was not going to win this, that Jesus was not going to establish the kingdom like they thought, they fled, and they left Jesus, right? We see this, right? Why did Rome kill Jesus? It's because, as N.T. Wright says, the words, Jesus is Lord, is a political threat, right? Jesus is Lord is such a controversial political thing to say because Caesar was Lord. And so Rome, like they do all rebels, they arrested Jesus and crucified him, right? It's because everybody misunderstand what kingdom Jesus was here to build and what kingdom he was inviting us to build, right? And it's crazy. Even after Jesus dies and comes back to life, we see in Acts 1, the disciples are with Jesus and they pose this question. They say, when will you restore the kingdom to Israel? right? Jesus spoke so frequently about the kingdom of heaven because people were so compelled to counterfeit kingdoms. Sometimes our vision for what God is up to is just too narrow, right? It's just too small, and I think we see that in the whole journey of the disciples. And so maybe, maybe that's why Jesus was giving these parables to his disciples who had already left everything, right? Maybe he was trying to challenge them in that on the other hand, he spoke very little about politics, right? And we're going to be a church. We're going to wrestle through this. Jesus spoke very little about politics. He didn't say much about politics. And I think this sheds light on the fact that maybe country, the, the kingdom of country wasn't very high on his priority list. In fact, the only thing that he does uh, talk about is taxes. And in Matthew 22, there's this really interesting instance where they're trying to trip Jesus up. And they say, hey, Jesus, who are we, are we supposed to pay our taxes? Like, what's, what's the deal here, right? And Jesus says, give me a coin, right? Whose face is on this coin? To which they replied, it's, it's Caesar's face. Then it belongs to him. Pay your taxes. Give that back to Caesar. But guess what? Whose image is on all of us, right? God's image is stamped on each of us. And so that means that we should give of our whole selves to the kingdom of heaven, 
right? Just like the parable. Because God's image is on us, we belong to a different kingdom. So let us commit ourselves first to the kingdom of heaven, right? Jesus spoke a lot about it because we settle for counterfeit kingdoms. And we can't talk about the kingdom of heaven without addressing some of these kingdoms. And one major, um, one major form of this today, a major manifestation that we see of counterfeit kingdoms is Christian nationalism, right? And so what I want to do for a couple minutes, I want to invite you guys, bear with me, lean in. Uh, you have my number, so you can call me after, right, if you want to chat. Um, what I want to do is lean in and figure out what does God say about this? What does scripture suggest about this? Because if anything, if we stumbled upon this treasure, wouldn't we want to commit to it in the way that we should, right? And so I want to talk about it for a couple minutes, offer some clarity, and then we'll see where we end up, okay? And so I want to talk about this. This is a phrase that we see uh, come a lot uh, and so I want to address it, and I think as a church we should have some honest conversations. But I do think that if we wrestle with it for a couple of minutes, we see that this idea of Christian nationalism um, is not compatible with what God's calling us to, right? What we see in the scriptures, what we see with his teaching the disciples. And so first let me define what this is. Uh, per my understanding, I know there's a lot of definitions out there, but Christian nationalism is the wedding of Christianity and nationalism together. In the context of America, it insists that the U.S. was established as explicitly a Christian nation, which we'll work through in a moment. Oftentimes, the lines between political power and gain uh, and humble, the humble transformative movement of Jesus become blurred and almost indistinguishable. Christian nationalism insists the relationship between Christianity and state must be protected by law and culture at all costs. Right? It is a movement that puts emphasis on America as God's means to spread Christianity to the world. And it co-ops and it blends heaven and earth, which is never a good mix, right? We see that with just what the disciples are doing. It's a counterfeit kingdom, and I want to wrestle with you all about why that might be the case. And so what I want to do is I want to look at some of these tenets of Christian nationalism and wrestle for a moment. What does this look like in light of the kingdom that, that we found, right? And so one tenet of Christian nationalism is that, um, that a nation can be a Christian nation. But if we wrestle very honestly with this for a moment, I don't know if this can be true, right? It's a country. It's a landmass. It doesn't have a soul like you and I. Surely it can't be a Christian nation, right? Uh, the notion of a Christian nation in some ways is a misnomer. Author Greg Boyd says it this way, you can't have a Christian nation any more than you can have a Christian petunia or aardvark, right? Or a Christian coffee table. Like, and another uh, pastor says it this way, that Christian is a great noun, but it is a poor adjective, right? We see how, we see how that gets a little complicated, Right? If I were to apply this idea on a smaller scale and say Chester County is a Christian county, I'm sure some of us would think, well, I know some people in Chester County that I love and care a lot about who like, don't know the Lord, right? If I were to say New London Township is a Christian township, like we see where that goes wrong, right? We see that that's not, it's not an accurate reflection of how things are, right? And some might respond very appropriately, well, you know, wasn't America founded on Christian values? Yeah, that's fair, right? The founding fathers, their faith traditions definitely informed them. And we see this in, in the documents, the founding documents of this country, right? There are some wonderful ideals in there that are so commendable, right? So that is valid and true. However, we've just not lived up to those ideals, right? 
They could be on paper, but aren't we graded on how well we love our neighbor, right? We've not lived up to those ideals. In fact, in our history, the Bible has been used to enforce and you know, offer permission to genocide of Native Americans, right? The Bible has been used, I remember in a class I read about this, um, where uh, people interpret the Bible differently. And so we talked about how slave owners would interpret the Bible for the purpose of keeping slaves in submission, right? Even with segregation, people would quote scripture as the founding documents for enforcing those laws, right? And so scripture in that sense was responsible for a lot of atrocities, or at least the, peop- the way that people use them. So we see how that just can't work, right? While we cast this vision for these ideals, and while they, while they are so commendable, right? And while we have well-intended aspirations for everybody to encounter this treasure, and for everybody to encounter Jesus, it just doesn't represent, calling you know, any nation a Christian nation, just does not represent what is accurate and true. And so that tenet of Christianity just does not hold up, right? And we shouldn't get angry about that, right? We shouldn't get angry and be like, well, it's their fault. This isn't a Christian nation. But rather, we should be compelled by compassion and empathy that there are still people in our community who have not encountered this treasure. We should be compelled by empathy and compassion to bring people in so they can experience what God has given us, right? Amen. We should be compelled by that. Another tenet of Christian nationalism is that one's country is God's means to spread Christianity, whether that would be through law or culture. Tim Keller, he's a pastor from New York, highlights how this idea kind of contrasts God's design. He says, God is not working his redemptive purposes in the world through one favored nation or race. All nations are put upon a level, and Christ has taught us to look on all nations and races as our neighbors and brethren. This idea that one nation's kind of set on a hill to accomplish this kind of makes little all of the other nations, all of the other nationalities and races that God is still working through. God's doing as much work in Africa as he's doing in North America, right? And so this idea just is not theological, does not reflect the kingdom that God is inviting us to usher in as a church. We have to identify this, right? And as we mentioned before, this idea of uh, compelling people through law just doesn't work, right? And this applies to any nation that's trying to, uh, and again, there's nothing wrong with law, right? There's nothing wrong with advocating for those without a voice. It's really important, actually, that we care for people in that way. But what I'm trying to get at is law does not transform hearts. And so we can't expect our legislating this stuff to bring people to Jesus. And isn't that what we want? Don't we want to see this community encounter Jesus, right? The law just might not be our go-to to make that happen. In addition, we don't need legal authority to do what God's called us to do, right? Yeah, it makes it convenient. Yeah, perhaps it makes it easier. But I don't need permission from anybody because God's given it to me. God's given us the authority we need to do anything that we need to build this kingdom, right? God's given us the authority to love him and love our neighbors in a way that is transformative. I don't need, I don't need permission from anybody, right? And so we don't have to worry there. We have that authority. Now, I know this is a lot, 
And I know it's not fun, and perhaps this wasn't something you were expecting on 4th of July weekend. So I appreciate y'all leaning into this as we, um, as we lean into this kingdom, right? But I want to uh, clarify some things before we wrap up. I am in no way suggesting at all that we hate our country. Not suggesting that at all. Tomorrow, I'm going to go with my family, and we're going to watch fireworks, and I'm going to eat way too many burgers, and it's going to be wonderful as we celebrate some of the greatest qualities um, in this country, right? There are things worth celebrating. There's a reason why our immigrant brothers and sisters are trying to, just like any of us would, find a safe place for their family to exist, right? There's a reason why a lot of people come to America because they do see there's some qualities about America that could support and, and, and help our family, right? Some of the freedoms that they offer, right? And so I'm not in any way saying that we hate America. And a lot of the privileges that we experience, we understand, did come at a cost, right? I know there are people in my family who served, and I know there's people here who served, and so I don't mean to minimize any of that. So I'm not saying at all that we hate America. Instead, what I'm trying to say is that if a good thing, like country, becomes the greatest thing, then it becomes a bad thing, right? If a good thing replaces the greatest thing in our life, then it becomes an idol, and it is automatically a bad thing. And we see that in some of the tenets of Christianity, when it, uh, Christian nationalism that blends the two, right? If, if our love for country impedes on our ability to love God and love neighbor of any country, of any nationality. It is an idol. And it is not of God. In these observations, I'm not suggesting that we slander our country. You see this a lot online, like people just slandering each other. Slander helps no one and is not productive. And so I'm not suggesting that we just kind of throw mud for mud's sake, right? But what I am suggesting is that anything we love is worth critiquing right? We critique our shortcomings. Why? Not to put it down, but so that we might grow and be better, right? Writer Joe Forrest sums it up well. He says, in the same way that acknowledging the flaws in one's marriage doesn't or shouldn't indicate a desire for a divorce, honestly wrestling with Christianity's entanglement with nationalistic idolatry shouldn't have to lead to a dissolution of one's faith or patriotism. But at the same time, any sort of theological or political worldview that elevates America above any other nation on earth is idolatry. We see Jesus trying to usher that reality in with the culture of the kingdom of heaven, right? Pastor Tim Keller uh, adds to this. He says, we can and should love our country and its distinctives and be proud of its accomplishments. But if we can be proud of its accomplishments, we must also be ashamed for its sins and failures to live up to its ideals. Every nation, every nation on earth is made up of sinners. They will have great moral wrongdoing and evil in its past. To hide or minimize that past is to take a major step toward idolatry and to reject God's righteous judgment on our sins. Jesus repeats these parables to the church because sometimes we are compelled by the wrong things. But if we're being honest, sometimes we're compelled to the wrong things. Christian nationalism of any kind is a counterfeit kingdom. And it often actually has the opposite effect uh, where it deters so many people from the Jesus that we see in scriptures, right? That's not what we want. 
That doesn't bring joy or transformation to people. And so perhaps this is why Jesus calls us to build the kingdom, right? Perhaps uh, this is why Jesus uh, provides clarity for what this looks like for the church. And I, like you, want to see this kingdom built. And so we have to ask the question, what does it look like then to build the kingdom if it's not this, right? And we see it in scriptures and we see it in the teachings. One commentator sums it up this way. Jesus didn't come to offer solutions to societal ills, to enforce good behavior, or to take over our governments. He didn't come for any of that. He came to transform lives from the inside out by winning them over to the new kingdom through supreme acts of love, forgiveness, and mercy. Just like the treasure in the field, right? He's compelled by joy because of what he found. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is advanced by the people of God performing acts of self-sacrificial love, mercy, and justice for their neighbors and their enemies, right? Man, what would the world look like if we responded in that way? What would the world look like if we prioritize loving God and our neighbor in that way? As we usher in the kingdom of heaven, right? That's the only mandate in the kingdom of heaven is that we love God and love neighbor. And that's all we need to bring about transformation. We don't need anything else, right? So that's what Jesus is inviting us to. So when he's inviting us to win people over for the kingdom, Jesus did not intend that we would accomplish that through country. Jesus intended that we would accomplish that as a church, through the church, right? As we win people to the kingdom of heaven, Jesus did not intend that that would be accomplished through law. No, Jesus intended that it would be accomplished through transforming love, right? And that's what this whole series has been about. That's the love revolution, and that's the kingdom of heaven, and it's worth giving everything for. Amen? Amen. Kingdom citizens, compelled by joy, naturally go to great lengths to love God and neighbor. So you'll see, I hope that that could be us. I really hope that that could be us. And we actually see uh, this most evident, um, the most evident portion of this revolution uh, at the end of Jesus' ministry. Uh, Jesus takes the throne, but it's in the shape of a cross, right? Jesus wears a crown, um, but it's a crown of thorns, right? And he establishes his kingdom, and he eventually overthrows every country, right? Through a supreme act of love and sacrifice, right? And this is how Jesus establishes his kingdom. It looks foolish and ridiculous, but he invites us into that. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to finish our time together with communion um, as we recognize and celebrate this treasure that we've stumbled upon. Whether maybe we were searching for it, like the merchant, or maybe we were like the farmer, we stumbled into it. Out of joy, we're going to celebrate this moment together. Um, but as we do, uh, every time we take communion, we always start with a prayer of confession. And I think that's just to um, hold ourselves accountable, to look at things realistically so that we can uh, receive what it is that God has for us. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read this prayer of confession or pray this prayer of confession together. So would you pray with me? Holy God, your love is amazing, steady, and unchanging. Your love is relentless, passionate, and astounding. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus, which has redeemed us and restored us to a right relationship with you We confess that we take the gift for granted, 
we fail to grasp the significance of the sacrifice, we continue to live as unredeemed people. We love others rarely, we love you feebly, and we put our own interests first often. Forgive us of our sinfulness, cleanse us, restore us, reorder our loves aright, and ignite our hearts with a passion to live for you. We humbly ask in Jesus' name, amen. On the evening, uh, Jesus was sharing a meal with his disciples. He took the bread during the meal, and he gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Eat and do this in remembrance of me. Then after the meal, we see him take the chalice, and he gives it to his disciples, and he says, Drink from this, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and the forgiveness of sins of you and others. Drink this, and as often as you do it, do this in remembrance of me. This is where uh, the revolution started. Jesus' ministry, and we see it climax here in this moment and on the cross. And it is an act of self-giving love because that is what was necessary to transform the world. And so you're going to be invited at this time. I invite the ushers forward. What's going to happen is we're going to sing a song together as a church, uh, declaring that we have freedom in Christ, uh, declaring that we have so much joy as a result of this kingdom that he's invited us to. We do have gluten-free over here, and there are some cups as well, if you would not like to do intinction. Um, but at this time, we're going to sing, and we're going to share in this meal together.
started at a table right where a lot of people thought the revolution was dead it was actually just beginning and God invites us to participate in that now every single day till we see this kingdom come in fullness amen Amen. so church I hope and pray that every single day we can just stumble into this field and encounter this profound treasure that God is inviting us to May we in our joy be so compelled to cast off all the cares and the worries of that day to make this treasure ours so that we can make it the world's. Amen? Amen. Amen. Hey, thank you guys for being here. We hope that you have a safe holiday weekend. Take care. We cry.